0: Hey everybody, tonight is a kind of, you're about to hear kind of a, just say a kind of a special episode. Uh, we have a uh, previous guest of the show, Aaron Gupta, a uh, reporter, chef, highly opinionated about food as well as Portland. Meeting with new friend of the show, Jason Miles of the This Is Revolution podcast, and as well as the band Bitter Lake. We started out by talking about Portland and the very particular like food policing and Uh, A bunch of stuff going on here, but it kind of, but once the, uh, once kind of like, since both Arun and Jason have been cooks before, they start getting into discussions about, very detailed discussions about regional food patterns and preps, and we get into everything from, let's just say, we examine food, food and culture and as well as why certain regions have certain foods, how certain other foods became popular from a very uh, historical materialist vibe, materialist vibe. And we mentioned everything from some of the, some of the fracking towns in North Dakota to opinions about nomad land to talking about life in life on an oil rig in the Gulf Coast to how Jewish people, we're responsible for fish and chips becoming a national dish in England. It's a wide ranging conversation. I have worked a lot on this and I think you will all really enjoy it. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at we are giving the mic like at gmail.com. We are supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash giving the mic subscribers get not only will get the episode a few days ahead of everybody else you will also get uh let's say custom cat picks and a little like semi semi-regular newsletter that i put out of a lot of stuff that i've been listening to and a bunch of stuff that you should be listening to so there are benefits there aside from just the ability to help support us do the show so uh, yeah please oh uh, again uh, if you can you know tell like one person you know about this weird little like leftist show out of portland oregon that you know that you've really enjoyed because if you can tell just one other person about us that will do you know help us out a hell of a lot all right and with that i want to thank my guests jason and Arun for getting, spending their time on this friday night and this wonderful conversation that we're about to have and i'm about to deliver it to you right now and so without without further ado here we go wanted to do was i, I was th- what what's, what prompted this was i was thinking about because i think a lot one of the one of the things that you've noticed in like, in like the last year there's been a lot more like doubling down of like really really hyper policing like social justice types who get really really itchy into you know kind of like reifying a bunch in reinforcing a bunch of like racial distinctions and i was so i was thinking about uh, that in the form of like food and culture and I know that and both of you guys have uh have had experience experience in food in different in in different parts of the country and as well as I willing to bet opinions about the you know like i said the 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 almost like the syncretic nature of like different cultures coming together to make new kinds of like American food I figured I'd start that we i would start with that and then we'd just kinda of, in you know we 'd go from there, plus I figured having the two of you meet would be uh, really good as Jason's show is very good and I think Jason I think Arun would be a very good guest
1: you're talking about a, a much deeper problem and and I think the food angle is is symptomatic of it I mean and and if, if I forget let's let's talk about like culinary nationalism it's a good to way to put introduce it. that that concept you know because I, I think you know obviously we're also going to talk about cultural appropriation. But like, you know, I... I really don't use I've, – I've stopped using Facebook really to talk about politics that much. But I've just been for such a long time just been wanting to fucking lay into Portland politics. Yeah, I'm going to preface this by saying like some people, I know this will like totally offend and make them go ballistic. Other people will, will say right on, you know, exactly. So I'm just going to – that's my preface to this. So look, th- there there's a problem particularly in Portland of – of race hustling you can't just pin this on white people portland is the whitest big city in the country but i call they, portland they, atlanta
2: for white people
1: yeah and you and you i think you've heard me rant about this before jeremy it's it's basically the problem is there is no real organizational form, so people reproduce themselves largely through social media. Yeah. It's a way that you can get status, you can get like kind of this almost celebrity status, like if you have a 100,000 people on Twitter you, you, following you, you can feel like a celebrity. And, and there are people in Portland that have pretty damn big following, And that means you can also leverage money and you can leverage power from it. And social media is all about conflict. And the easiest way to create conflict in Portland is around race. Now, there's a lot of great activists in various communities of color, right? You know, black community, Latino community, Asian American community but it's still the whitest big city in the country. The African American population in Portland is 5.8%. The number of actual African American You're you're from the south Jason or
2: I'm from uh, Oakland, California, but I am a touring okay. musician and I've been to Portland probably more times than I've been to Sacramento. <laughs> okay. So I know that I understand the <laughs> racial makeup of Portland. That's so why I made the comment. So no, I'm, I'm a touring I'm a touring musician when the world was shut shutdown. Actually, my booking agent is based out of Portland. Who is not, uh, white. He's actually a black man, but he's also from a white city of Reading. But uh, I've been to Portland hella times. I've played all of your venues, all the ones under, under 5,000 capacity. And it, 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 I, it, I'm not a fan of the Northwest in general, man. Like I said, I'm from, <laughs> I'm from Oakland, man. And I play, I play yeah. like heavy music and which is a white scene as it is, but I, I just, I have friends, a, a handful of friends in the Northwest. And other than that, it's like, I only play there if I have to, brother.
1: Yeah, I hear it. So the, the reason I, w- I was kind of like painting this, this broad picture, like is, is because I want to put it what I'm going to say, which, like I said, people, some people would like go ballistic if, even if I put it in context. Lots of great activists, but essentially you, you create the political economy for race hustling that mm-hmm. inevitably there's going to be someone because It means status and money, and we live in a fucking capitalist society, so of course people are are, there's going to be someone who's like i want that status and money Mm -hmm. and so the the easiest way to fucking get it in portland is just to start screaming that you know you're racist or that's racist and this this city is saturated in white guilt i i call it white guilt (laughs) a white guilt spectrum disorder there's liberal white guilt there's uh uh progressive white guilt there's radical white guilt there's revolutionary white guilt it's it's like what what is the, like, it's the a uh, something the, emma beekman society the they're they're kind of like they're they're like the basically the descendants of the sojourner truth organization with the which was this outfit in the 1970s where it's just like you know white people should do whatever black people tell them to it's just like and of course you're going to totally open silly. you're going to <laughs> totally open yourself up to uh fucking grifters because any black person that comes along if you're going to be like we we Do whatever a black person tells us to do. Yeah, Yeah, or or what's uh, the, what the hell is uh, the guys uh, who have the bakery? They're they're like an offshoot of that, the Black Hammer time. There's an
2: offshoot of those clowns? Oh my God.
1: No, they're an offshoot of something else. Oh, 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 okay. Hang on. Michelle, what's those, the Uhuru? You know movement you know and it, because I had friends who like encountered this shit in Berkeley, where mm-hmm. you know it's 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 just like white people were- were working in their bakeries and uh, but anyway. But white people also do this a lot to each other in Portland, where there's this constant and because it's a way to get power. So that's the starting point that this that what we have is we've created a a social environment where just kind of screaming these like uh, slogans is what gets you noticed because that's how mm-hmm. social media works, right? Mm-hmm. Twitter, uh, Twitter's what, 280 or is it 288 characters? I, I forget. 280,
0: I
2: think. Two.
1: Yeah. So it's just like, you can't have analysis of 280
2: characters. <laughs> but you can Whitty. be witty, right?
1: You can be witty or you can make witty ac- and, accusations. Witty in scare you know? quotes. You can, you can be inflammatory. So this is, a, and this is what happened with that, like, cultural appropriation thing a few years ago in portland and and you know what i'm saying to jeremy yes i think there are instances of real cultural appropriation and there was one case in portland where it was incredibly fucked up the saffron colonial but anyway we haven't even started have not
0: really and you are listening to giving the mic to the wrong person i am your host jeremy here on a lovely friday night with with some uh, new friends and old friends on a but to say, though a pun not intended, a spicy chat talking about I think what what our guest, one of our guests has described is culinary nationalism. So right now I am flying solo in hosting duties. I want also, like I said, Jason, this is why I wanted you to meet. Uh, Arun, Arun, this is why I wanted me wanted you to meet Jason because, especially if Jason, if you have him talk to Pascal, I think mm-hmm. uh, these two guys would go would get along famously. Not to mention just talking about just bullshitting about life in New York, which is a whole oh, other okay. story.
2: Arun, are you from the the
1: city? I I am, I am, and and I've I've been stuck in Portland for the last year oh, because damn. of the. Because of the pandemic, I leave in two weeks. I'm very happy. I mean, I like Portland a lot, but, you know, this is one fucked up city. It's unbelievably fucked up. You know, ra- rather than take down the pro-cop candidate, they voted all these fucking, I call them woke racists, have voted voted for this electoral suicide bomber who's a lunatic just because she's a black woman. And they let the pro-cop, they could have taken out the pro-cop mayor, but instead they they voted for this candidate who is a right in candidate who had no chance in hell of, of winning and who's a complete lunatic. But it's, she was backed by all these stupid white people who think – they're so anti-racist they're going to stop the candidate who could have won who is going to take on the cops
0: the, yeah for, not for not for nothing is a, a a new tag you've seen around portland is no gods no mayors but anyway yeah as you can hear two or uh, two guests one of whom has been here before another one is is the first time actually on a proper show let's go with the one who's been here been here before uh, arun can you introduce yourself to the viewing audience
1: Yeah, my name is Arun Gupta. I am an investigative reporter who has written for publications such as The Daily Beast, The Washington Post, The Intercept, Guardian, Jacobin Nation, etc. I am also a graduate of the French Culinary Institute. I uh, am trained in classical French cuisine. I cook professionally in uh, New York City for a few years, and I am writing a book on the revolutionary nature of American cuisine for the new under contract with the new press. And so food is in many ways my life. I probably know way too much
2: about food.
0: Jason, can you introduce yourself? The first time you've actually been joining us on our show, can you introduce yourself to the viewing audience?
2: Yeah, my name is Jason Miles. I am the host of This Is Revolution podcast out of Oakland, California. I've been a musician touring for the last 10 years or so. And right before the world shut down, I got into doing this. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while. And It was something that I had wanted to do in the interim, in between tours, because up until recently, I lived in a rehearsal slash recording studio in West Oakland, California. So I thought it was just a great place to do a show. And it was. (laughs) Yep. And and now I do it out of out of home. And it's definitely switched its focus from uh, musicians talking about uh, politics to talking more and more about about politics. Oh, cool. That's about music.
0: Yeah. And you've recently been when did you guys get added to the zero books network? Because I remember I found your show right before that happened. Mm -hmm. Was it like February or something or I can't remember? I don't remember the exact
2: date. Doug Lane had had hit me up. Hello, Zero Books readers and viewers. It's me again, Douglas Lane, and in this video, and proposed something to me that I I could not pass up, and that proposal has gotten. Even, even bigger, you know, dealing with Doug is like dealing with the left mafia, if you will. So there's going to be an even larger output of more zero based content. It's a, it's a good thing. I'm actually happy of the relationship uh, that we have with zero. Zero is also going to be putting out uh, my co-host Pascal Robert's book, which is going to be a history on black politics from Obama to, to Trump, I believe.
0: Cool. When, when, when is, when is his book scheduled to be finished or does he have any Don't idea know. yet?
2: Okay. Don't know. You know, dealing, I was yelling at him today about that actually.
0: And Arun, do you know, do you have any idea what the, what the timeline on your, on your book is, is looking like right now? Or is it still kind of like in the tournament? It's
1: supposed to be done like four years ago. Ah, nope right. <laughs> <Well>, fair enough. <laughs> But uh, also, no, I'm getting, I'm getting, it's, it's speeding up. I'm getting close to halfway done. The, I didn't even really, I think, begin getting good work done on it until about two years ago. And then the pandemic at points threw some spanners in the world. hasn't been the easiest time to be productive. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah.
0: Well, that's the, uh, that was one of the, was one of the lies of that was going around very early on during lockdown. You, you had all these like media profes- professionals who I I guess really we're all like frustrated novelists talking to each other like oh look now you you have plenty of you know everyone's at home you'll have plenty of time to to be creative and to finish that play or you know now you can write king lee or write your novel or yada 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 and like nope turns out having a massive global pandemic in which and uh, which everybody's miserable and you know there's a high death rate and in the middle of a horrible political period turns out that is not the most productive to do stuff.
2: I, I will say this, I will say this, to challenge that narrative. But while I was in the studio, I actually, you know, I also worked in live music. So that of course shut down. So I took a job working at one of the emergency shelters at Oakland in Oakland. And between that and then having one of the largest encampments in the city of Oakland directly across the street and the outgrowth of that got on another people living in the middle of the street before I left the warehouse I was living in. It did prompt me that mixed with a horrible rat problem I had. I've recorded an entire, an entire record by myself. <laughs> wow.
3: Like I literally I mean, learn how
2: to play
1: a few instruments. Everyone reacts differently. I mean, I I, I don't doubt that some people have been incredibly productive. Thank the rats, man. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know how how if this story is is true or not, but let let's you know maybe it is. But one of the greatest like historians of the 20th century, Ferdinand Braudel. Mm-hmm. There there's whole schools of thought based on, or there's a whole school of thought, world systems theory based on uh his work he supposedly wrote one of his magisterial works the mediterranean and the king of age philip while he was a pow a french pow and a nazi prisoner of war camp so you know people can be productive in terrible circumstances
0: i guess so Jason, can you talk about your your cooking past?
2: I actually have cooked professionally. I I worked in finance, real estate finance, in my twenties, and then when the market crashed, I I lost everything, and I decided to take a greyhound bus to Lafayette, Louisiana, and cook in the Gulf of Mexico on oil rigs. Wow! Um, yeah, hard for it is. And it was a culture shock. I am from California, born and raised in California. I had family from the South, but I have never lived in that part of the South or experienced that that part of the South. I'd never been around people in the Klan. So it was an interesting learning experience. You know, I've also cooked in a few restaurants in the in the Bay Area. But, you know, when you talk about, like, culture... And cooking there is no you know coming back home to california it gets kind of insulting when when other black people are like oh this is like black. i'm like yeah, it's a little different when you go to the south and and that you culture mean, was shared with me again. what do you mean when you say it's a little different when you go to the south when the things that that i was taught that were authentically quote-unquote black or or soul food everybody ate
1: so, so you're saying what you were taught is soul food in Oakland, everyone, mm-hmm. and that's Black people food in Oakland. Yeah. But in the South, that's what everyone ate.
2: Like I literally, this was before like grits was hot. Like you know well, now, like there's all these grit dishes, and you know. So uh, okay, can, yeah. can 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 I play interviewer for a minute? Sure, sure, yeah. Sure, the, sure, like sure.
0: I said, this is not the most formal of, of
2: experiences. So yes, do it.
1: So. Okay, just kind of like rapid fire. So the racial composition of the crews,
2: they varied. So I never stayed on one rig for for. uh, So you work in hitches, right? And you're supposed to work in two week hitches. It's not a lot of money out there. It's a lot of I would probably say it's the equivalent of this is probably going to sound shitty to some people like slave labor, because a lot of the labor is is shipped in from the Philippines. So you have either very, very poor black people. Uh, or very very poor white people that do what I did, which was the cooking and the cleaning. So the which, the clean- which is screwed up because
1: because if if you're a roughneck, you're getting paid pretty well on on the platform. Mm. You're you're in a yes. platform, right? I was I was on one
2: platform, which is a little different than a rig. You know, I was on rigs that were called jack up rigs. So uh-huh. if if you know anything about those, they they get towed out to a location. Once you find a hole, and then they drill out the hole, the well, and then they jack the rig up until it's, it's producing, and then you you jack down and, and move on to the next the next job. So in that case, you're cooking on the ship itself. I'm cooking on – it's a rig, but, yeah, I'm cooking on the rig. I, I definitely worked on a lot of different rigs with a lot of different crews from various uh-huh. locations uh-huh. in the south. So I got to stay a little longer than two weeks.
1: Uh-huh. So
2: I the longest I stayed was like 49 days, which was like uh-huh. the max. They were like, okay, you can't stay here that long. Because keep in mind, you're fixed to – to a location, it's not like you're on a ship where you're actually moving and, and docking and, right. and getting on right. land for so many days.
1: And these crews are probably overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, male, right?
2: Yes, uh-huh. the, and, the, the female labor is is usually through third party third party work,
1: right? And so you know, so it's it's mainly so. I mean, I know I know in the in the oil fields they call them roughnecks. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's a term.
2: Is a term across like, across the. Across the yeah. Land rigs, California, Louisiana. Yeah. Roughnecks. Yeah.
1: Okay. So the the roughnecks, uh, I imagine it's
2: white and mainly white and then black and Latino. I didn't work with any Latinos that were not in the kitchen.
1: Okay. Maybe some Asian, like Vietnamese maybe, or I don't know. I saw
2: know. Vietnamese third party people. There was one yeah. and he was from the South.
1: Okay. Yeah. 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 So, and so they just, they want like I mean, it's hard work. So they just want like fatty, calorie rich food, right? Lots of
2: starches, (laughs) lots of meat. You'd be surprised. So first of all, I was off the coast of Louisiana. So most of the crews I was working with were from around southern Louisiana with some northern Louisiana crews and some Mississippi crews. And I think I had one crew where there was a few people from Atlanta, but mostly you're working with people from Mississippi, a few Texans here and there, mostly Louisiana people. Right. Because that is the industry there. I think there was like 3000 and some rigs around that time that Mm -hmm. I was that I was out there working and they ran the gamut because you also have a lot of people that have like uh, diabetes. Uh huh. Right. 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 So well, it, it too, definitely ran too, too, too much for a cheating. <laughs> <laughs> too much southern food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, so um, I should, uh, and cut, you have to make four meals a day, which I thought was interesting. And there was uh-huh. rules to the food that were very to the region. Right. You know, like grits. Was a was a necessity. You had to have grits every day, which kind of shocked me because my first time out, it was like a, a majority white crew, and I had never really seen white people eat grits like that.
1: Right. And so we're just talking about plain salty grits with like butter. Yeah. And and then that that's that's basically the starch, right?
2: Yeah. This is like a breakfast thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and, and you might have your eggs or whatever on top of that. eggs
2: to order, and you know, sausage, bacon. You got to make biscuits. You know, all that good Ooh. stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On Sunday, I'd make donuts for everybody. I learned how to make donuts. Nice, awesome.
1: Uh, g- cake, cake, donuts or yeast donuts. Yeast. So, but you know, describe a typical day's menu. Ooh,
2: you got me going back. It was so actually, the days are generally set. So uh, I, this has been 2007 is when I was I was there. 2006, 2007. So it was like uh, there was a steak day it was t- Tuesday and Thursday. So you had to have. Steak to order, baked potato, and generally you had to grill it on a barbecue grill. So they would give, they would let you use uh, charcoal outside for that. Excuse, Excuse me, me. Sunday was seafood day, and Friday was fried chicken day. So, so, so those seafood, days are, are set. We,
1: are we talking mm-hmm. about a a boil, or are you talking yep. about like fried catfish? So yep.
2: So you have to have fried catfish. You get, you better have a boil. You better have a boil. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: do we need need to explain boil for white people you know or for uh, (laughs) nonsense
2: you know being that we're talking out of a show in portland i'm sure that there's (laughs) some really good crawfish boil place but generally uh, a boil is like kind of in the south it's like a family thing too oh yeah um it's it's like you know you're gonna have a big party or somebody graduated or something like that it's like okay we're gonna go have a big seafood boil and we got out there you have um crawfish are, are wild right so
3: mm-hmm.
2: gotta have crawfish there was one job I was on that we got uh, these huge fucking crab legs and like shark because it was an insurance job where they would actually be picking up rigs that had fallen over from the hurricanes
1: and then let, let me let me just go back to the crawfish for a second uh-huh. now, now you said that the crawfish are wild do you know
2: exactly where you were getting them from no I don't know exactly Cause, where because they're now coming from China I would have. I thought they were. This is two thousand seven. I thought we were getting them from Louisiana. Maybe you were. So, like this.
1: This is again a, a good little entry into you know this kind of whole broader topic I mean we 're going to be talking about cultural appropriation and and the, the concept of culinary nationalism is it 's a neutral concept mm-hmm. it's it's that basically culinary nationalism exists all over the world and it's an outgrowth right you know that this is one of the effects of the French Revolution is this is the really the birth of nationalism and mm-hmm. so then you, then you have this reaction to the French Revolution where you have all these other European entities then develop these national identities, right? Germany did not have a national identity. Certainly, Italy did not have a national identity. So many of these countries did not have a national identity. These these developed. And before the twentieth century. For the most part, there was just food, right? It was, it was just like you were eating it to survive, to get day to day. Right. Mm-hmm. If there was a, if there was a cuisine, it was a regional cuisine. The only kind of national cuisine that really probably existed pre 20th century was French cuisine. And that's, that's a very specific haute cuisine. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the saying about like French cuisine is it was more likely that you would see French cuisine eaten in vers- Versailles than one mile outside of Versailles, right? But that French cuisine would be eaten in palaces all the all across Europe and and into Russia itself, right? You know, Moscow would have the Tsar would be having French cuisine. You know the you know in in Austria the Habsburgs would be having French cuisine. In Italy they'd be having uh, French cuisine and, and kind of on and on and on. There isn't really national cuisine until the twentieth century, and it's a kind of agglomeration of regional dishes and styles that becomes an expression of nationalism. And at this point, It's safe to say that culinary, that that food is a most profound, uh, basically, carrier of national identity after language. And now for someone like myself, who can kind of understand Hindi, but, you know, like when my folks speak, I can understand them pretty well. But, you know, you throw me in some like crowd in India, maybe I'll get (laughs) what they're saying. Maybe I won't get what they're saying. Right. And I certainly my speakability isn't that great. So for me, Actually, food is Indian food is my primary carrier of identity as being Indian. Like if I didn't have Indian food, uh, I don't know what my Indianness would be. So that's kind of an interesting aspect of culinary nationalism. But what happens when, say, in Louisiana, where people would, would go out, they would go out mud bugging. Right. That, that's another that's a slang for mm-hmm. for crawfish. Mud heads, yeah. And th- and they would go out and catch them. But that really doesn't happen anymore. It's coming from China. They're being raised on a massive scale in, in the rice paddies. And I, because last year I was, I was in, a, I was kind of doing a little culinary tour of Texas. I was doing some reporting down on the border on the refugee camps in Mexico. But I also was kind of doing a two for one, and I combined it uh, with some research uh, for my book. And I came across a number of places where I had crawfish boils. And so I, I remembered asking, them. Where are you getting your crawfish from? And they're like, China. And I'm like, holy shit, this has happened so fast. Now, I'll give you a little bit of nugget of information to, to just. Indicates how screwed up and bizarre our kind of global food system and supply chains were. Someone in Louisiana, so Louisiana used to have a really big business in farmed catfish, and that started being outsourced more and more to China. Now, my understanding is pretty much the Louisiana uh, catfish farming is dead. And someone in the 2000s figured out, or it may have even been the 1990s, that you could grow the catfish in, in Louisiana. And it was cheaper to ship the catfish to China, fillet it, and ship it back to Louisiana. That and as you,
0: yeah. Real also Aaron, that, I have a, I do have a, a question when you're done yeah so that, that, that's
1: that is the insanity because of course if, if you have any familiarity with the South, you know those processing plants, the labor is damn cheap out there, mm-hmm. so it's just like how the hell could you ship it refrigerated 10,000 miles in both directions, and it's cheaper to do it that way uh, like, well, hold on, on
2: one second guys, my, my son is crying, hold on one second
0: okay. <laughs> Yeah, Jason's son, uh, young son, he's got a two-year-old named Phoenix, turns out to be a, uh, a recurring cameo character in a lot of shows, as he will kind of wander, <laughs> he will wander in and want to occasionally, you know, say hello to all the guests who are on, on the, on the TV screen, and occasionally offer comment, but. Well, mm-hmm. well, 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 I guess I'll, I'll switch back to, like, uh, my question is, is the, In terms of like setting up national food and people bringing food with them what effect did did the did having having like french and italian refugees during the napoleonic wars having to relocate to england what effect did that have on i think not only just english food but also the idea of like the restaurant and like establishing that kind of like uh that kind of cuisine in in napoleonic england
1: Oh, wow. I I do not know that history because
0: I know that uh, I think I think I think gelato, I think it was gelato that first made it to England was during the Napoleonic uh, Wars because everybody got displaced out of like Switzerland and Italy because of like all of the all the war battles down there. Jason, are you back? Not not back yet. Okay. Anyway, but uh, but like I said, yeah, this is well, why.
1: I mean, a- English food is is terrible. So <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's I I can't imagine that it had that great of an impact on on the British diet. Maybe it would have been some quirky stuff. I mean, like I can tell you about. The, I've, I've read pretty deep into the history of of fish and chips, which is actually uh, it's. I believe there's a lot of evidence pointing to that it was a uh, Jews who, a Jew who created the first fish and chip shop in London, Joseph Malik in the mid 19th uh, uh, century. I think I have, um, heard, yeah, I think I have heard that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, there, there's some, there's disputes about whether Malik was really the the first or not, but a lot, a lot of people credit, uh, uh, him with doing it. Malin actually, not Malik. Gotcha. So, you know, it's, it's just like, obviously fried fish was, was nothing new. The interesting thing is chips was actually something new and it wasn't the first reference to chips is, it's from a charles dickens novel I'm, i can't remember might i might have been a great expect no a tale of two cities it's a line about i think actually the 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 french like you know husks of potato Husks of chipped potatoes fried in like meager drops of oil. Gotcha. Because because at least you know frying in some cultures in oil is an old technique. You know that goes back even thousands of years, especially for imperial cuisines, right? You know the the you know like the cuisines of the court Mughal cuisine and in the Indian subcontinent, the imperial Chinese cuisine tempura, which is actually related to fish and chips, was developed in Japan in like the 1700s but the origin of a it's, it's believed the the fry the frying of the fish had to do with what's known as crypto Jews during the Inquisition so these were were Jews who would hide their faith and they they were booted out of Spain first and then not long after that the Inquisition made its way to, to Portugal and uh a lot of them uh wound up in Holland, and they would fry fish and there's actually one guy kind of unravels the the whole history of it that fish and chips goes back to like as eighth century Persian sour beef stew um called Sik. but but anyway by frying fish, Jews were able to keep the Sabbath. While hiding their religious identity, because you know the Catholics would have the meatless uh days and and often meatless friday meatless Fridays, but there were many other meatless days and if they made the fish on the Friday and then doused it in vinegar, which has antibacterial properties, of course they had no idea about this, but they didn't know it would somehow preserve it for the next day, so mm. they could uh, they could then have the food to eat the next day. So go. this is believed to be the, and, and then eventually crypto Jews from the Netherlands made their way into England. They were not allowed, uh, they were banned, but they uh, were still moving there. And so then this guy, Joseph Mollen, he's the first one who combines the fried fish with the chips. And then actually Oliver Twist, that's also the first mention of fried fish and it happens and it happens in the Jewish quarter of, of London. It's encountered. So, you know, but since we're talking about cultural appropriation, culinary appropriation, could you think of a more British dish than fish and chips that, Actually, it's introduced by Jews. So it's just like and of course, I would drive like the British nationalists, you know, nuts. Mm. You know, if you if you tell something someone like Neil Farage, hey, it's just like, hey, you're eating a a Jewish dish.
2: Yeah, he'd probably try to say he'd probably try to say that like the, the British made it delicious or some shit like that. Right. Right. Even even though the British didn't do shit to it. Um,
1: But so, you know, the reason, uh, Jason, the reason I was asking you about the menu is that it's like Mm -hmm. you say, well, you know, right. So you have people who have diabetics, health problems. This is something I've, you know, encountered a lot in in my reporting, talking to factory workers. Like when you get to these men and women in in their 40s and 50s, a lot of them have serious, even younger, a lot of them have serious Mm -hmm. health problems you know heart disease diabetes i i talked to this uh one guy he worked at the carrier plant that's where trump quote unquote saved all those jobs back in the uh, 2016 they were supposed to be outsourced to mexico and then they basically leaned on the company and, and threatened to pull all their pentagon contracts and i went there to talk to the workers and i talked to this one 37 year old guy who uh, told me he had already had three heart attacks jesus uh, yeah, yeah. So, but at the same time, you're like, "What are you telling me? You're bacon, fried chicken, steak, yeah. fried yeah. catfish, étouffée,
2: <laughs> gumbo, jambalaya." You know what I mean? Yeah, no, seriously, you know, eggs to order that are cooked in in crazy oil and and bacon and sausage. No, it's it, it's it's definitely a bad for you environment. There is a salad bar, but you can you know imagine what that looks like. Um, <laughs>
1: It, 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 it probably, yeah, it probably probably looks like uh, you know an orphanage. You know, it's very
2: it's very basic. But I I will say this, I will say this. I was shocked at because there there's twenty, you're working twenty four hours, so you work, you have two crews there on the rig that that work twelve hour shifts. So that means that there's two kitchen staffs.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the kitchen staff is literally two people. <laughs> and if, and, and, and how, how,
1: how big how big's a crew?
2: It, it varies, man. You can have like 35, 40, 50 people. You can have 150 people if, if it's a job where there's a lot of like fracking to do. And you have to bring in different crews for different things. So there could and be a lot of people two in two
1: people cooking for them?
2: So, uh, two people in the kitchen at a time, you have a galley hand and a and a cook, and then uh-huh. that guy cooks two meals and then you have another guy that comes in and cooks two meals. So there's uh-huh. a midnight meal for the guys that work the overnight shift, which is kind right. of like uh, you're going to do something with the dinner leftovers and make one more two more dishes. And then you have uh, breakfast. And that guy also has to make breakfast. But that guy also has to do all the baking. So you also have to have cakes and pies and cookies and cheesecake and donuts.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, I I love baking. But so do you have to make your own pie dough or do you get like frozen pie dough?
2: No, brother. You you got (laughs) to do it all. You got to learn how to do that shit on the fly. And I, I hated baking because baking is a lot more science than cooking, right? Yeah, I got taken aside and 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 talked to and there was two things I'll never forget. My first day on the job, I walk out and I'm I'm nervous, right? You know, again I'm from mm-hmm. California. I don't know what I'm getting into here. Mm-hmm. Uh g- getting on a rig is a, is a, also a very frightening process. So the guy looks at me, the 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 steward looks at me and he says, "So you're the boy from California." And He says this in a very thick Texas accent. I said, "Yes, sir." He goes, I just want you to know we don't eat that chicken and waffle shit out here. And I was <laughs> And it took me off guard cuz I was like, I, "Okay, that was the furthest thing from my mind." And he goes, "You know, you boys from California eat that." And I was like, "That, well, not me." <laughs> and it, and he looks at me and he goes, "Who the fuck mom ever made them chicken and fucking waffles?" And he started like yelling at me for a while about chicken and waffles. Yeah.
1: Talk about, yeah, so talk about cul- he culinary nationalism, and,
2: Jesus! Say again.
1: Jesus said, "Just like that's like fucking like all the south uh, east of the Mississippi is eating
2: chicken and waffles." Well, you know, it's an Atlanta thing that blew up over there, but it's not like traditional. You know, I don't know if anybody that talks about, "Oh man, my grandmama made me chicken and waffles when I was sad." Like, I don't know anyone that grew up saying that shit.
1: And and you... no one's no one's grandma made a Big Macs, but I'm sure they're eating their <laughs> their, their pie holes with Big Macs.
0: But, you know, I'm just I'm just having flashbacks to the scene from uh, Black Dynamite. I can get you a waffle. But all we got is the chicken from last night. Now I can bring you some of that if you want some meat. (laughs) Chicken and waffles?
1: That's it!
2: That's life. what I was going to say. The Black Dynamite scene where dude had a chili and donuts restaurant and he was yeah. trying to find something that oh, and shit, that's know, it runs off yeah. chicken and waffles. And it and it kind of blew up in California with Roscoe's. And I think uh-huh. people look at California as L.A. and they think everybody's from L.A. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, nah, dude, I'm, I'm first of all, I'm not from L.A. And, you know, no. I, I, I don't fancy chicken and waffles. I don't think those two things go together all that great.
0: <laughs> at least not, uh, you know, at least not sober. Oh, well, well t- yeah. See, two, two, yeah, two, two questions slash comments. Well, first, this is why I wanted the two of you to to meet together because, like I said, I think you have, you have more than a, more than a few shared bits of connection. Second, do either of you have a hard out at any time tonight, or like what? what how is your how is your time going, or what? Because it's cause it's. I'm a, good.
2: I'm good for another half hour.
0: Okay, because at some point, like we, I mean, we could always do this where like we pause that we we pause our talk here. Here, and then we pick it up like another night to, to have more time to go over everything or should we just like just talk about everything you know do it all in one shot tonight let's, so
2: let's, let's let's just keep going enjoy it we're and, and it i fun. also want to ask you to come on my show at some point in room if it's a, if it's okay with you because i was yeah, actually yeah, reading yeah, yeah. I, I was reading uh an interview that you had and there was a lot of things you were saying that i was like right on to and i do think you're going to hit it off with my co-host pascal uh, okay
1: yeah. okay well what was the interview
2: it was the interview you had during those riots those police riots in Portland. Yeah,
0: it's the, okay. the it's the like the little like post you know the after the summer debrief from the for the Portland uprising last year that I sent him that okay. your your overview I sent him that to
2: that bit. I was okay. I was blown away blown away because that was like the most sober-headed view of that whole thing that I had actually really <laughs> heard. Because, you know, I have, I have friends in Portland and their take on it, and they're not very political. Uh-huh. Outside of, like, Doug Lane. But, you know, my friends in Portland were kind of like, well, what the fuck's going on, man? Like this shit is kind of crazy to me and
1: it's, it's insane. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a brutal rationalist. I mean, for me, there's no point in doing politics unless you get to the fucking core of what's going on with you know, no fears, no favors you know mm-hmm. you, you, do not, you do not shy away from the hard truths the, because what's the fuck up doing it otherwise so, so yeah say, no yeah. i
2: i was i was like reading your shit and i was like right on so if you want to drill me and ask me crazy questions about the ridiculousness of of cooking in the south and i also i'll add this <laughs> caveat to it that, that hopefully you'll find equally as interesting then i went and did the same shit in north dakota
1: Oh shit, were, were you in? What? Oh, I, I I went, you know, my, my girlfriend and I, we did a, we've done like seven cross country road trips in the reporting. And mm-hmm. in 2016, we took a detour all the way up north just to go through Williston. And unfortunately, I, I didn't, we didn't get time to spend as much time as, as we wanted there, but we tooled around and that is one
2: crazy ass. It was a crazy scene when I was there. So I was there before a lot of shit had popped off. So I was there when they had, I was there when they had just one strip club. When were you there? 2010, 2011.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's well, I think it's, it started already booming, but maybe Mm -hmm. I guess it, but the real boom (laughs) didn't come until maybe it peaked in 2014, right, right before the oil prices crashed.
2: When the oil prices crashed, a lot of people lost their ass. But when I was there, Walmart, if you remember, there's a Walmart in Williston and that Walmart was a a little bit of a city because there was more jobs than people in Williston, but there was more people than housing. So in Walmart alone, you had people paying seven hundred and fifty dollars a month to stay on somebody's RV couch.
0: Shit, this is that wow. we're 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 getting back into nomad land territory here.
2: Yeah, yeah, nomad land was kind of a thing that I saw there. Like, I actually encountered several people. Now, now, going from working in the south, that's actually how I got the job. A friend of mine who I had met that was uh, he was from Louisiana. He cooked out there. He had got a job, and he called me. He goes, Jason, there's more money to be made out here. And I'll be totally honest with you guys. I have no problem telling people exactly how broke I am. I was making seven dollars. An hour working eighty four to ninety one hours a week. Jesus. In in the, and then when I went to Williston, I think it was like eleven seventy eight to start working eighty four hours. The day I got hired, the entire kitchen staff except for one other guy quit. Wow. Yeah, this is yeah, dude.
0: This is this is straight M- nomad land shit
2: and they quit because they had high and this is this is going to sound bad and i'm not saying this as a slight on the people this was just a thing that had happened out there more often than people think i don't know the people personally so i don't know their motivations for quitting but it was mainly a staff of natives uh-huh uh-huh and they all got their check and they said fuck it and left
1: yeah. I mean, you know, maybe they just, you know, the the thing is when, uh, when you're poor, you, you, you learn how to be poor, you know, you. and, and if you, you know, and you learn how to survive on a little, and if you, if you get like a few good months of pay, often you're like, fuck it, I don't need to work for a few months that's,
2: now. That, that's what it was. And also people, another thing that happened in Willison, and I don't know if you got a chance to see this while you were there, there's a lot of help wanted signs and places yeah. like places like Walmart, Places like McDonald's were paying eighteen and twenty dollars an hour to start. Gas stations were paying eighteen and twenty dollars an hour to start because there wasn't people to work these jobs because you made more money in the fields. So are you? Are you? Are you do you
1: know the work of uh, David Harvey, Jason? Yes. Okay. So uh, this is great because then I mean this is getting a little off topic, but let let's just talk about Williston real quick. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's never yeah, happened on this yeah, show
0: before. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's never that's never happened in the history of podcasting so i just i
2: just did a i just did a video essay for zero that should be up next week about my take on nomadland
1: i i did a review of it for in these times and because michelle and i were traveling across the country is the same exact time covering occupy wall street and so covering Mm -hmm. a lot of the same stuff that jessica bruder did And let's just say the the movie. There's a lot to like about the movie in terms of the acting. The politics of it are horrendous. Agreed. Um, And it it actually it just completely just guts the the heart of the book. There's some
2: real problems in the book. I read your review actually. Did you read the book? I really. I I did not read the book. I saw an interview with Bruder, and then I followed her uh, a few interviews of her on on the on the internet. And I and I just kind of forgot to get the book, and then Leisha Brooks, the the brother, the sister of Michael Brooks, actually had told me to watch the movie. It's it's worth if you've seen the movie, read the book because
1: she gets into the politics like you really see like there's this. One scene that su- sums up how horrendous the politics are. So Jessica Bruder, she uses real life. You know, it's a it's a nonfiction book.
3: Mm-hmm, so one mm-hmm. of
1: the, the the characters she builds a book around. Linda May is also mm-hmm. in the move, movie yep. Nomadland, right? This, this this is what I met. Oh, really? That's crazy. So Chloe Zhao is is known for this. Yeah, the director. Yeah. That's that Close she uses. Out, yeah non-actors in 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 her movies so linda may plays a a version of herself and that's very important a version so in the book in early on we learn that the real linda may worked at amazon and she's Mm -hmm. kind of despairing because she can't Work at Amazon again, yep. because she got a repetitive stress injury from yep. you have you have these guns where you you know scan the prices, and her repetitive stress injury was so bad that lifting an eight ounce cup of coffee would shoot pain from her hand to her neck. Yeah, you like in, like, the, like, movie, like in the movie. In the movie we see Linda May working with Fern, that that's Francis Mm -hmm. McDormand's character, using the scanner gun. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, and no one would have any idea if you didn't read the book, that this completely subverts the reality for this character and of what the Amazon warehouse does. But since we're we're talking about food, one of the things I, I thought that was really interesting about uh the movie and the book really doesn't it only deals with it a little bit um is it doesn't really talk much about the food it shows them eating all sorts of shitty food right the like fried chicken and the, and pizza, yeah, the, ha- hamburgers but it doesn't talk about what the hell type of effect this has on your health to be eating this garbage day after day and you see as 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 Jessica bruder's going around doing this, you know reporting Michelle and I are also doing it, but because i 'm very food focused, this is something that I would talk to people about, and so i I was talking to, I did this uh, piece on the Walmart working class for the Socialist Register, and it I used interviews with a uh, quite a few Walmart workers who we had met through the Occupy reporting. And I was asking them about their diets and, you know, they were telling me stuff like, you know, they were couples who would spend $50 a week on their groceries. And, you know, so many of the Walmart workers and I talked to Walmart workers across the country said the same thing. It's like a company town. You know, that you work there, but you're forced to shop there as well. Why? Yep. Because it's cheap, it's convenient. And these workers were telling me, you know, it's just like I eat these 59 cent chicken pot pies for lunch. You know, it's just like I dream of fresh fruits and vegetables, but I can't afford it. Right. And we never saw
2: that in Nomadland. No, where, it and- was it was made to look pretty. You know, she's having these gorgeous picnics and in, in fucking. <laughs> the big right. sky of montana and yeah northern like, nevada yeah wondrous cinem- really yeah,
0: wondrous outdoor cinematography yeah i will say that you know right. i don't know
2: i yeah i'm sorry go ahead i'm sorry i'm sorry i i'm
1: sorry but, but back to back to williston i mean i'm sure it's the same situation there where people were eating a lot of garbage and you know we, some
2: life- yeah we had walmart people stay with at that so i worked at a housing facility for oil field workers and whoever else was out there so walmart had actually contracted because they couldn't keep a full staff at walmart so they were bringing people in from from pretty small towns throughout the rust belt and the and the the north and so these the, these are the, they they would call
1: them man camps yeah. right because because it's again it's overwhelmingly male I, I mean you would read these stories and you you live there so you would know yeah. better about That's how like 19th like century lumber sis, towns like single women did not feel comfortable going no. shopping in the middle of the day
2: So here's a true story. I'll tell you a true story. And maybe you've heard stories like this. I'll tell you some true stories from being there. There was one young lady that came into the kitchen. So they did. Everyone quit. So they had to do a quick hiring. And and usually people that work these jobs are coming because they're coming to dry out. You go mm-hmm. cook in the South, you're working with a lot of guys that are going to dry out for two weeks and then get fucked up for two more weeks and then come dry out again. I had one steward leave because he had to go on a on a court case because he had a meth charge while he was off. So th- that's kind of the, the cats you're dealing with. So there's a woman, one young woman, she was a couple years younger than me that came out there to work and she would go to her room with a couple of, of little handheld mace sprays because so many people wanted to hit on her. Williston, unlike the Gulf of Mexico, I will say this about the Gulf and working in oil rigs. There's so much debriefing if a woman comes on that for the most part, people just leave them alone. Right now, you know, things were worse before, right? Now they're like, right. we're going to leave you alone. In Williston, it was quite the opposite because in the Gulf, you can't have liquor and and drugs mm-hmm. in, in those waters, right? You'll. I was actually on a rig that got raided. Jeez. um oh well
1: williston they they're making i mean the the you know the Roughnecks out there making good money, but how much of it was being spent on drugs, on alcohol, on
2: gambling, on sex? Brother, they were manufacturing dope in their room. You're talking about also getting guys, because also let's keep in mind, you drove to Williston so you know it's not off of an interstate. You have to really go out of your way on state routes to get there, and these roads ice over. So there's only going to be a certain type of cat that's going to be willing to drive these large Fucking trucks out there! So they were taking guys that some of them had bad CDLs. So you're talking about dudes that might not be able to to drive for a company in their hometown. Now they're they're cleaning up for for a few weeks or a few or a paycheck or two. Tru- and CD, trucks were CD, falling. CD,
1: CDL is commercial driver's commercial driver's license. license. I'm sorry, yeah. commercial okay. driver's yeah. license.
2: Well, it's fine. So 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 you know the the environment in Williston was way more frightening. Because now you have thrown into the mix drugs, alcohol. For a lot of guys, their first time leaving home, not incarcerated. Jeez. So, and and, and a lot of money. You're talking about walking in the door, making three to five thousand dollars a week. Yeah, this is. I mean, to this start. Like,
0: this sounds so much like 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 mid nineteenth century, like lumber and silver towns and and mining camps and like so McCa- I'm, McCabe and okay. Mrs. Miller. So
2: I'm getting to his point about the women. So yeah. What what was happening is guys didn't want to stay because there's a thing called Jody. So if you've ever been in the military, they they joke about Jody's screwing your girl, right? And Jody is the make-believe man that is handling all the business you're supposed to handle while you're away at work. So the <laughs> Jody thing in the Gulf of Mexico is a funny joke. You start joking with these guys about Jody. They're like, man, I hope Jody fixes that motherfucking broken <laughs> screen door while he's banging my wife because they'll be tearing the pussy up for free. So they would joke about it out there and be really, really funny. So I was used to that kind of joking with it Right in in North Dakota. These guys were very depressed because they were like, my girl's not answering her phone. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, maybe it's off. Maybe the battery's dead. Maybe she's fucking someone else. What are you going to do about <laughs> it? You're here. Let that shit go. So th- it, it was It's also very violent, right? Because these guys aren't used to being away. They're getting sad. They're getting fucked up. So anyway... So to entice these men to stay, they were saying, we'll give you a few thousand dollar bonus and we'll get you an apartment. And an apartment was literally a a, uh, a tiny, what we would call now a tiny house. So hipster heaven is what North <laughs> Dakota looks like while I was there. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> it was like these trailers that they put doors and windows in and said, this is your apartment. And maybe they'd stack two on top of each other. And they'd go, look, you got a upstairs and a downstairs. A duplex. So these cats. <laughs> These cats were moving their families out there, right? So if you move your family out to this little town in the middle of nowhere, even if you are from nowhere, this is more nowhere than you're probably used to, and it's Mm -hmm. cold. And so when the women, when the wives and the families would go to Walmart, and I'm not joking, the Walmart was a city because Mm -hmm. so many people lived there. So they would go, again, it's 13 to 1, men to women. They go just to go grocery shopping, and they're just getting... Cat called on another level,
1: and right. they would I, come I, back.
2: Yeah, yeah, they come back and tell their dude, "Hey, I'm getting cat called." And in some of the sometimes they're calling the police. The police go, "This is a true story." The police go, "Look, man, we can't come to all the calls. So just set up something in your shop. You have a dispatcher in your shop. Set up something with the dispatcher in your shop. If somebody gets out of line, call up the dispatcher. You guys handle it, and then call us to like clean it up." <coughs>
0: Jesus, they had have, they have their own bouncers?
2: It was it was to that level because the police weren't coming. I saw a lot of fucked up ass whoopings in Williston, and I'm from Oakland, California. I grew up in Richmond, and, California. So
1: so 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 what was the food like you were making up there? Let me guess: burgers, chilies, you know, steaks,
2: sausages, chops a few Louisiana people came up with me and they referred to the food as Yankee bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I had never so, heard of tater tot hot dish before, and it did kind of look like throw up. Holy shit. That's, that's,
0: <laughs> that's some man. That's some massive, you know, great white North. That's the Midwest. That we were in
2: Williston, North Dakota. Yeah, so that's you got the Midwestern Northern Minnesota shit. guys. Oh yeah. And you have Idaho, Northern Idaho guys. And a handful of Montana guys.
1: Jeremy, do you know the uh, uh, story behind Tater Tots? No, I don't.
0: Like I, I want to hear it. This, you know, this is why uh, that I was suggesting earlier that we might <laughs> we are probably going to need more time. But anyway, uh, please tell the uh, what is the story of Tater Tots?
1: So, so many foods. You know, this is one thing that, that I'm writing a lot about. About that, there's this. W- we have an American society this problem of reductionism, right? That we want to reduce everything to basically physical, biological phenomena because it means that you don't have to deal with with social issues. You don't have to deal with like social policy, how we organize our society. So. In the 90s, it was big to blame everything on genes, right? There's a crime gene, there's a poverty gene, there's the gay gene, and that turned out to be all bullshit, right? You see the same thing happening with taste, where taste is reduced to like, oh, it's addictive. And it's just like, that is such bullshit. It's just like I don't know anyone who's gone through Dorito withdrawal. Do you? You know, man, you know man, the, you the man, idea man, that and, man, and, and man, and man, line a lot of out there who actually say Doritos are a perfect, the perfectly engineered food, or Snickers is a perfectly engineered food. You can have cravings, you can have habits, you can have you know patterns, but it's just like. And there's also this whole problem with the drug addiction thesis to begin with, right? You know, Carl Hard, Gabor Mate, and others, they write about like the addiction thesis is in a lot of ways bullshit, drug addiction thesis that. People who are quote unquote addicts, when you start to to really look at what addiction involves, it usually poverty, unemployment, mental health issues, racism, Carl Hart, who's, he's world famous for his work. He, he grew up and he's African American and he's this neuroscientist at uh, Columbia University who's done these groundbreaking studies showing how like there's actually very, very little you know physical addiction per se so food is not really addictive so how does this relate to tater well tater tots are like oh my god this is great dish you know Everyone loves it. Everyone should eat it. No, it had to do with a surplus with capitalism or Ida, the frozen french fry manufacturer, which is short for Oregon and Idaho. And, you know, that that part of the country is a major producer of of potatoes. And, the, you know, one thing is, I found funny about Portland, Oregon, potatoes are really damn cheap here. You, know, you can buy like 10 pounds of potatoes for two bucks yep. uh, because it's a major producer of potatoes. So they're making all these frozen potato products in the 1950s, and they were left over with all these trimmings, and they're trying to figure out what the hell do we use them for. So they were making them into pellets to use as cattle feed, and then they had the realization there's actually a, a much more lucrative captive audience we can sell these to, children. So that is the origin of tater tots, right? This is actually how TV dinners began. Swanson had a half million pounds of chicken left over and was looking for something to do with it. Sorry, turkey, a half million pounds of frozen turkey. And that's how they invented the, the frozen TV dinner. Or why is high fructose corn syrup and everything? Well, it has to do with 1970s Nixon administration were encouraging overproduction of corn because they wanted to lower domestic food costs. They wanted to capture global a market share. And so you have a massive amount of corn produced that is taxpayer subsidized. And then then these chemical companies, I forget which one in particular, figured out how to make high fructose corn syrup cheaply. It already had been invented like 20 years ago. But then Dow or one of these other companies figured out how to make it really cheap. And so then that suddenly high fructose corn syrup is in everything. And this is actually also the origin of depleted uranium it's a surplus. Radiated material, uh, radioactive fuel rods, from nuclear power plants that they wanted to uh, figure out a way, what do we do with all these like thousands of tons? And it's just like, oh, we'll turn it into ammunition and shoot up entire countries with depleted uranium, leaving this toxic substance that has like a you know half-life of two billion years. So it's interesting how many foods begin as actually a surplus product for capitalism to figure out what to do with.
2: Yeah, that's That's where the cheese stuffed crust comes from, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Cheese eating has gone from 11 pounds in the early 1970s per person per year to 45 pounds. USDA scientists work directly – even as they're telling you not to eat, even as you have one hand of the government saying don't eat so much cheese, the other hand is working with Domino's to come up and Pizza Hut to come up with stuffed cheese crust. Who the fuck needs stuffed cheese crust? Did, did, did you, you ever as a kid say to yourself, are you eating pizza? Well, I, wish it, it's <laughs> I got an answer. An the answer. Uh, answer, uh, uh,
0: answer to that is college students.
1: or or the taco bell quesadilla with four different types of cheese it's just like no it's because the taxpayers are subsidizing the dairy industry people have stopped drinking milk because it turns out all that bullshit about how you need milk really isn't true and and so the government has this massive surplus of dairy products it's easy to take you know because one cup of milk can be turned into one ounce of cheese, right? This is what farmers in the 1700s would do um, with their grains. It's instead of like having to transport it on these terrible roads, all this grain, you turn it into whiskey. You know, and so then it's it's you can get a ton of grain into one barrel. So you take all this milk and you turn it into cheese, but you're still left. The government has I don't know like half a billion pounds of cheese or more in warehouses. You still got to figure out something to do with it. So they start working with all these food companies to come up with all these products so that we'll eat more cheese. And our cheese eating has quadrupled. And it's just like, and I, I say I say this as as a fat dude, and you know I I think Jeremy you wouldn't be insulted if i include you in that club i am well yeah
0: well also i will say this the uh, getting back to an 80s thing because jason current on your show is just kind of like how the 80s especially pop culture 80s and early 90s set up for things that you know how everything got worse in the mid 90s onwards who remembers mm -hmm. all the jokes about government cheese
2: yep it never melts
0: (laughs)
1: <laughs> but, you know, it's just like when you say that tater tot hot dish, like, I mean, I love French fries and I like disco fries, but it's just like, why are French fries no longer French fries? They have to come <laughs> with like, like chili. It's just like, oh, French fucking like taking these potato products and dunking them in a hot oil where they soak up all this grease. That isn't rich enough for you. You got to dump ground beef and cheese and sour cream on them, too. hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just like you wonder why 70 percent of Americans are obese or overweight.
2: Seventy percent. It's
1: now the norm to be fat.
2: Well, look, look at these. So my girl watches these cooking shows, which to me are like just gluttony. It's just cooking gluttony. And no matter where they go, it's like, look, this is our house burger. And we we grind our own beef and it's locally sourced. (laughs) And then we put fresh bacon in the beef. And we top this with the thickest bun you can ever fucking imagine. We try to make it as uneatable as possible by having it too large for the average mouth. And it's $25. (laughs) Yeah. And it gets
0: a, gets a full, like, half hour program on basic cable food and travel shows. This is, yeah, it's like how I, how I knew my parents were, would be watching, cause my parents watch a lot of basic cable alongside their standard, like, you know, cable, you know, Fox News watching consumption habits is that whenever I would get a text at, like, a certain time of night asking me if I had ever visited, a, have you ever been to this place called, like, Frank's Noodle House in Portland? That meant that they were watching, uh, they were watching, like, some travel sl- slash food show that would always come to portland because that's one you know that's getting back to portland food portland one thing about plenty of portland portland food places is that a lot so many of them have yeah uh, I, I, I perfected let's just say perfect is about how dumping far more money into their pr campaigns rather than food quality and wow. uh, yeah, there, there's a reason why like everybody knows uh, a comp there's a there's a uh, there's a particular donut shop that is so well merchandised that they have like subsequent locations in like Japan, Austin, Seattle, Southern California, but we're just yeah. it's not really that good. But the amount it, it isn't what,
2: voodoo. Voodoo. <laughs> uh,
0: you said it. Not try to get him lynched. Yeah you, say, yeah, you said it, not me, but it's a thing where yeah, they the marketing is uh, the marketing is light years ahead of like you know the donut quality. And
1: um, wait, 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 you want to talk about shitty food that's gone worldwide, McDonald's? Yeah, I mean, it's just like look, I mean, I I like junk food. I I don't like you know, but I'm talking more like. Ben and Jerry's Doritos Cheetos Oreos Butterfinger, shit like that yeah fast food I don't really like because it's mainly garbage now there there is there's a a good like fast food burger chain in New York called Shake Shack I think they come to
2: California now they're they're in the bay now
1: there's one, and I don't like in and out I don't think, I think In-N-Out is totally overrated.
2: Because to me, like the vast majority... Spoken of like a true food, East Coaster.
1: <laughs> the vast majority of fast food hamburgers taste like the condiments. And the yeah. meat has that, and so... This is actually a really interesting thing. I, I have this paper from these chemists. They, they went and they bought a bunch of burgers from leading fast food chains, and they wouldn't say which ones because I, I bet you they didn't want to be sued. And so they did the mass spectrometer uh, gas chromatography analysis of what was in these burgers, and they said all the burgers were 100 percent derived from cattle. Right, that's very interesting wording. Right, derived <laughs> from cattle, food-like substance. Turned, it turned out that when it came to meat, and they actually defined what meat is, you know, as 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 the the muscle of of the animal, that the burgers ranged from a high of twelve percent meat to a low of two percent. The rest, the rest was like blood, ground cartilage and skeleton, tendons, nerves. And so 2%, that means if you had like, say, say one of these is McDonald's, just for argument. So 2% would mean if you had one pound of McDonald's meat, basically about two teaspoons of that is actual beef meat. The, the rest of it is byproduct, and so they don't taste. To me, it's just like they taste like shit. And actually, when it, when I cook professionally, I w- I used to be warned about this repeatedly. When you have the sales guys coming around, you know the um, food companies, like, hey, buy our ground beef. That you always take a patty and throw it. You just make a a patty and you throw it on the grill. And how much liquid comes off? That's what you're checking because uh, they will grind uh, frozen blood into their ground beef to bulk it up, and and that'll come off when you cook it. So, you know, there are all these tricks, but it's just like Little Big Burger, I actually think, is, is a pretty good burger. Shake Shack, but it's just like, for me I I'm, I'm not I'm not a fan of the In and Out burger. I don't think it tastes like much. But so many of the fast food chains that that are like global phenomena. I mean like Subway, I worked at Subway as a kid. They have the worst goddamn bread. You're telling me that that's and that's like their point of pride. We make all our own bread. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, and it's just like all the uh, crap is terrible. So, I mean you know, we, we eat crappy food because it's cheap, fast and convenient. Uh, very will, true.
0: Yeah, I will say this. If you too ever want to get in, ever want to start your own, the, like a Marxist take or the political economy and historical materialism view of food, I will help you make <laughs> it. Well, like- we just
2: we just did a show on on sugar. I, man, I really wish we would have met earlier, brother Arun. We did a show with a friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Kelly Dietz, and she wrote a book on enslaved chefs, and uh-huh. and, and and also did a, I forget what it's called? It's some sort of course. Great Courses? I forget what they're called. But anyway, yeah, she did a I course think, on the history of sugar. Yeah,
0: it's Audible. has. Right. I think Audible bought the Great Audible Courses. Yeah, yeah, bought the Great yeah, Courses. She did a great course to, for sugar. Course Audible and, uh, Great
2: Courses. So we did a show on kind of how sugar and the slave trade, you know, shaped America and, and then slave chefs shaped American cuisine.
1: I, it um, sounds like they... Uh, a book I should get. I've, I've read *Sweetness and Power* by by Sydney Mintz, which is you know one of the most important. It's that's basically the book that's considered to have started the whole field of food studies, and and it's all all about a social history of sugar. The Caribbean.
2: She, she's an archaeologist and a historian, and she actually was part of a, a team that actually found and returned. I shouldn't say found. I think it was already kind of in. They knew where it was. Nat Turner's skull to his descendants. Found, oh wow! <laughs> oh yeah, yeah.
0: Here we go. I found it. The if you look for if you look up Kelly Fanto Dietz on Amazon, you get you get her book from 2017, Bound to the mm-hmm. Fire: How Virginia's Enslaved Cooks Help Invent American Cuisine. But also, she's credited for uh, came out in 20, 2016, The Birth of a Nation: Nat Turner yep. and the Making of a Movement. There's a tie into the film
2: yep she was a uh, an advisor on the birth of a nation film but no we were having we were having a whole discussion about more so how enslaved chefs kind of you know where certain foods come from and what the, the a lot of the slaves took from from Africa that we have now and how mm. that shaped the cuisine now and changed the course of stuff she went into a, a deep a deep dive uh, about rum right uh, which was which was pretty interesting not nah,
1: I I wish I would have known
2: you then, man. I wish I would (laughs) have known you. Yeah,
0: I tried to forward him the link, but I, I, uh, I was like, "Well, here, check this out. I think you might dig this." And anyway, yeah, timing is everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I was I was looking for a recording of it on YouTube, but I couldn't find it.
0: Wait, was that the um, – no, because that's the yeah, – shit, that, was the, was, that was the show that got taken down, it. wasn't it? Wait, hold on a second. Let me see if I can find no, it.
2: No, that show didn't get taken down. It's still there.
0: That show's I can, find, can I find – okay, this is Revolution Podcast. Oh, okay, shit, so send, me,
2: send, send me a link to it. I'll, I'll, I'll but YouTube definitely took down my show about turkey.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, 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 there we go. Hey, this is Revolution Podcast up to 1.99K subscribers. So get up there. Yeah. Here I am uh, putting a link to it. Oops. There it goes. I'm putting a link to it in so, the chat. But
1: I think, I think in Sweetness and Power, Sidney Mintz mentions that. The rum ration actually began as a subsidy, subsidy to Caribbean sugar growers. So I, I don't know if Kelly mentions that, mentioned that, but that to me was, was really insightful, right? You know, that this, this is the state is, is basically choosing to mm-hmm. take public, public monies to, you know support not just private industry but but the whole slave trade and 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 the whole you know triangle trade as as and constructing this form of power and i think the rum ration, you know, it went from something like an ounce a day or or two ounces a day to eventually about a pint a day within a century.
0: Yeah. And also, well, it, also, it was also a way to subsidize England's naval power because how they how they kept the... Tw- <laughs> there was a difference between the English versus the French Navy is that the English Navy served rum that had... It served grog, which was rum with lime in it versus the French uh, Navy, which served wine turns out having having a uh, line in your grog make lets your uh, let your sailors not get scurvy
1: really yeah the uh, so, so I, I, I I've done a lot of reading on the history of scurvy and and the British Navy kept going back and forth because they you know they Vitamins were not really discovered until the, the whole idea of vitamins weren 't uh, discovered I think until around World War one, and then in the '20s and 30's you would have various vitamins isolated so even in the you know what 's called the heroic age of the polar expeditions and this is a 20th century, early 20th century they, they knew scurvy existed, but they were still debating about how to prevent it and Robert Scotts expedition you know to the south pole where he and uh, two of his teammates ended up dying scurvy contributed uh, to their deaths because they still didn't know um, why exactly people would get scurvy and how to prevent it and the british navy initially there was a medical officer who was just like something like we can prevent it with lemons or limes and initially they did and then they started changing it and they essentially abandoned the, the um, solution, and so for a long time, British sailors were getting scurvy. You know, I,
0: well, the the practice, and that practice of that ration extended to modern times because my grandpa would tell the story of he would he was be stationed in Perth, and not only would he would he you know. Constantly go back, you know, you would go on shore and they'd get drunk with like the Royal Australian and, and the Royal Navy folks. But there were times when you would, uh, because you had a bunch of like, you know, allied ships anchor on the same place and do exchanges because all of the Royal Navy dudes, they had booze, but the Americans had ice cream because the American, they, and there was no, there was no booze ration on American ships, but, and there was no ice cream on British ships. And so they had a nice little, uh, they had a nice little exchange going for a while out in, uh, you know, out during wartime. We have been going for quite a while, you know, for our, for topic, to, you know, ripping on Portland and the, uh, and the, uh, the culture <laughs> and the nationalism of Portland through the long winding trail of... Particular food. Uh, yeah, matters.
1: we 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 barely even touched on this shit show when it comes to food here. So see, yeah, this, this might.
0: Yeah, that that might. We might need to to save that for like another episode.
1: Well, well let, let me let me let me close out with with one little story. So, okay. you know, what? So what? What was it? It was like some. A cultural appropriation list, like yeah, some folks in, in Portland had made this like Google Doc list of like an culturally go- appropriative restaurants.
0: Yeah, an, an anonymous, an anonymous Google Doc, which is always the best way to handle these things.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was yeah. This and was, I, I, I actually contacted them, and they got so bent out of shape because I, I was just like, so how many of you are actually people of color? You know, and they're like, we've never had anyone ask us that question before, and I'm like, so the fuck what? <laughs> makes-
0: yeah, this was like back in like twenty. 20- I think this was a, yeah. The, the the big brouhaha was sometime in I think mid late 2017 or so, and over you know. Started-
1: so there, there was this one cafe called like Saffron Colonial Cafe. And people were upset because the owner, she was a British woman from Hong Kong or something because of the name of a lot of the uh, dishes on the menu and also just the whole like saffron colonial that it was all about. The way it was described on the, on the website, you know, that it was, like, supposed to be evocative of the British Raj. And so I just kind of tagged along to one of the demonstrations. And I ended up, like, talking to – I didn't really talk to her that much, only a little bit. But I saw her in action. And I was just like, okay, holy fuck, this woman is fucked up and her restaurant deserves to be shut down. I recall – hearing her yell at someone like someone pointed out about the bengal famine right so during world war ii grain the british mike davis late victorian holocaust a book well worth reading Mm -hmm. the british were responsible for these horrific famines in india and china that estimates are And when I was like, Victorian Holocaust, I'm like, come on, is that overblown? Well, it turns out the death tolls were anywhere from like 30 to 150 million. So actually, Holocaust kind of underplays. You can thank Churchill for uh, that, yeah. And this is the late nineteenth century, right? So before the British got to India, there was famines about one once every hundred and twenty years in India. Then, when the British get there, there's famines once about every seven years because they totally destroy this kind of system of granaries and storage, and you know where people would turn over part of their harvest, but you know to to the local rulers, the maharajas or whatever, and but they. There were these networks that were in case there were crop failures, right? Crop failures are a, a phenomena, but salmon is you know, crop failures are a natural phenomena, but Famines are a human phenomenon. Right. And so someone is trying to explain to her about, you know, during World War II, the British shipped all this grain from Bengal, and the estimates are anywhere from like two to six million people died as a result of this famine caused by the British. And and Churchill's response was they're a beastly people with a beastly religion. Yeah. And she actually and she was just like, he was right. I was Whoa. just like, Jesus. oh my God! Oh. It's just like your cafe deserves to be burned down, <laughs> you know. Oh
0: my God, she admitted, yeah,
1: you know, and she had shit like, you know, instead of a Bloody Mary, it was like Lloyds of London, and I was like, you know, Lloyds of London got its start by insuring the slave ships, don't you? You know, and it just uh-huh. and her attitude was like, I don't care, you know. Jesus, it's you know, so I mean, yeah. So that was a case where it's just like okay, I'm, I'm not normally on the on the side of of like you know these these kind of self righteous food police who know nothing about the history of of food. You know, like, like we were talking about earlier, like Bon me. This was a controversy a few years ago when Oberlin College the food service vendor started like serving a Bon me, and it wasn't anything actually like a Bon me, and the and kids were screaming it's this cultural appropriation, and I'm like. Do any of you know actually know the history of Bondi? That it began because of World War One, that there was a, the French seized all these uh, German entrepots in Hanoi and they, they had all this food and France shipped over the bulk of the colonial administrators and army to take part in the World War One effort. So all this food was just dumped in the marketplace and previously the Vietnamese were not allowed to have bread because it was felt that it would, if you gave them bread to eat, then the, that would incite their kind of, incite them to to have democracy as well so it was a very racialized notion and and that's very common in the in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries these racialized notions of that food configures exactly to our racial construction so all this food is dumped in, in the marketplaces on hanoi and the bakers in the french bakeries in in hanoi where where you know there were lots of vietnamese and so they came up with this food, the banh mi, you know, using wheat flour and then all the various tin goods, the the pâtés and, and hams and stuff. And, the, and you know, the banh mi, when you look at it, you're like, somehow I don't think that this is an indigenous Vietnamese food, you know. So there's already this kind of cultural exchange and, and you know, and that's the whole thing about humans. It's, and this is what I'm writing about. In my book, one of the things that makes humans such a phenomenal species is our ability to imitate it and invent. But imitation is very much in, as important as invention. That is how things spread throughout societies you know we use the term like memes now but this goes back you know well into the you know i mean there's i was reading something about like culture among chimpanzees like there's there's actual evidence now that chimpanzees have culture that it's not just behavior or instinct where they're engaging in these kind of adornments that have no like purpose other than there some some sort of you know a signal to each other and it's something that is shared among non-related chimpanzees where one of them picks up this habit and then others imitate it right so it isn't that this just goes deep within human this goes deep within this entire primate species so this idea that you can't imitate other people's food is completely idiotic
0: yeah, I was gonna say the other thing about how just the, the post-war ramen phenomenon in Japan was because we had all the surplus wheat that from American farmers that they needed to dump on foreign markets. And so, uh, hey, we were already occupying Japan anyway. So here, you guys here have a, have a bunch of wheat to cook shit with. And there we go. <laughs> but. Okay. So we have been for quite a while. I think we is, what the hell time? Ooh, shit. It's 11 o'clock. All right. I think we should probably bring things to a close for our very, you know, our wide globe trotting and time, time time traveling conversation here. Held it's just some basic, basic cleaning up for the end of a pod. Let's see. Arun, you go first. Do you have anything to plug or how can folks get a hold of you? They
1: they can find me at Twitter at Arunindy. A-R-U-N-I-N-D-Y. I'm writing a book, like I mentioned, for a new press, Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction. I'm hoping it'll be (laughs) out in a couple of years, two years, 2023. Other than that, I, you know, continue to do some writing for The Intercept, Jacobin, In These Times, Nation, Raw Story. You know, not not a whole lot because I'm just trying to concentrate on the book. But, you know, you can find me on Facebook or, or Twitter, or you can just Google me and find a lot of the work that I've done.
0: Awesome. Uh, Jason, what do you have to plug, and where can folks can find
2: you? They can find me on all the social medias under This Is Revolution Podcast. Also, you can go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. That definitely will send you to wherever you can hear the show. YouTube, we do a live stream every Tuesday and Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tomorrow, as I'm doing the show, a Saturday, May 22nd. We'll be speaking with Seattle City Council member Kashama Sawant.
0: That'll be fun. Yeah. And awesome. I'm excited. Sweet. And I'll put in all my art collection stuff at the end in connection.
1: Well, I want to thank and y'all. Jason, for... Jason, tell Shama I said hi. We know each other. <laughs> oh, for sure.
2: For sure. Yeah. I'm okay. gonna, and I want to get your information before we hang out. Yeah. On. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, um, that'd be great.
0: Anybody have any final words?
2: Culture is to be shared.
1: <laughs> Amen to that
0: rock and roll all right uh, thanks y'all and that's that good night